Uh, Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 3. We're going to continue in our series looking at uh, Jesus' encounters with individuals. And uh, we got a little backed up, so we've got some catching up to do. Uh, I thought about uh, this week, uh, during the Revolutionary War, um, we know the story about how uh, the American colonies, the uh, colonials, uh, kicked the Brits out of America, securing our own independence uh, we know uh, uh, later on the Brits tried to reassert their control in the War of 1812, in which Baltimore took a really uh, prominent role uh, in that uh, story of history. But what people forget is that there was another British invasion here in the United States, except this time it happened in 1964. Can anybody remember what this was? This was the British invasion when the Beatles came to America and they debuted on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, if you ever looked uh, at, at the history of this event, it was, it was a pretty big deal. It was believed that around 73 million people tuned in to watch uh, the Ed Sullivan Show uh, that evening. In fact, most historians believe that never had so many people tuned in to a live program in the history of television. And if you look at images of that time, uh, they're pretty staggering uh, crowds as people swarming at the airports just to catch uh, a glimpse of the Beatles. Um, And some of the images and the stories around that are remarkable. Uh, The crowds, of course, were spectacular in order to see the Beatles coming to America. Well, I thought about that this week, uh, particularly as I looked at the ministry of Jesus Christ and particularly at our story this morning. Because often when we think about Jesus, we think about his suffering, we think about all of the, uh, the opposition and the rejection uh, that Jesus faced uh, towards the end of his public ministry. Uh, but there was a time during that three-year ministry period where Jesus was actually remarkably popular. Uh, he was teaching from town to town, uh, he was performing miracles, he was uh, gathering disciples, and the Gospels tell us that at those periods, crowds were, were pressing upon him. Uh, they pressed upon him to the point where uh, he had to, at points, feel overwhelmed and uh, perhaps at points feel exhausted because of the just sheer number of people coming to see Jesus. And for anyone who was living in Jesus' day, uh, it was very tough uh, to even catch a glimpse of him. Uh, to even be in his presence. But of course, the ancient world's a lot like our world as well. If you have influence, you can make things happen. And so our passage tells us this morning about one very influential man who managed to secure a midnight meeting with Jesus. And we read about this account in John chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 15. You can follow along in your copy of Scripture or on the screens behind me. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for its power. Thank you for the way your spirit takes it and shapes our hearts and our lives. We pray that the wind of the spirit, as it's talked about in this passage, would blow into our hearts this morning, that we would hear your voice, that we would encounter you, that we would be changed as a result, and that we would be refreshed in the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. And so our passage this morning uh, tells us the story of a a very powerful man uh, who had a very uh, powerful conversation with God, the Son of Man, in the flesh under the cover of darkness. And so as we read it, we're kind of presented with a, a couple of questions. The first is, who is this man? Who is Nicodemus that secures this midnight meeting with Jesus Christ? Well, it tells us in our passage that he was a Pharisee, which means he was a a member of the Jewish ruling class of Jesus' day. If there was a a wealthy aristocracy of Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees. And their job was an important one. It was to to know the scriptures inside and out, really better than anyone else. And so they would study the scriptures, they would become experts in the scriptures. And when people had problems and wanted to know how to interpret these scriptures for their own lives or for their society, they would come to these Pharisees, come to these experts to learn how to apply the scriptures to their lives. So you have to imagine them as as kind of theological judges and teachers and rulers all mixed into one, which made them incredibly important in what was a theocratic kind of society in Jesus' day in this Jewish corner of the world. And when Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel, he is saying something there as well. He's essentially keying us in to know that Nicodemus is probably one of the foremost of these Pharisees, the most preeminent of these people in Jesus' day. So in short, Nicodemus is an incredibly influential man, and he's a part of a very elite 
religious ruling class in his day. It was eventually the ruling class that ended up opposing Jesus to the point of even having him crucified. So we know a little bit about Nicodemus, but then the other question we're presented with is, is, is why does this happen in the night? Why does this happen in, in such a late hour? And, and, and John doesn't really tell us the exact reason why, so we're kind of uh, left to, to, to make some guesses as to why this would happen. Uh, one guess could be uh, that perhaps Nicodemus didn't like crowds. I've never been one that really prefers crowds, so I can understand if this is the reason Nicodemus wants to do this. Uh, perhaps he was concerned that he couldn't really get a real conversation with Jesus during the day hours because so many people were swarming Jesus trying to be around him. Or perhaps maybe the best reason is simply because Nicodemus was afraid. He perhaps was afraid that being associated with Jesus would somehow harm his position in the society. That if he was found in some ways fraternizing with the enemy, it could somehow subvert his social position or his role in the culture. If he had been seen with Jesus, then his reputation, everything that he had worked for, could be erased in just a moment. And so we don't really know why it was happening at night the way this was, but what we do know, what our passage does tell us, is that Nicodemus was fascinated by Jesus. He was awed by him and the things that he was doing. He was impressed by Jesus' miracles. He even comes to Jesus and and concedes to Jesus that, that you must be some great teacher. He concedes that that you must be from, in some ways, from above because no one else could do the things that you are doing. And so in the middle of the night, Jesus and Nicodemus have this powerful conversation about the nature of what true faith really is. And so what our passage does, it kind of leaves us with a lot of uh, unknowns, We're not even really sure how Nicodemus responded to this conversation with Jesus. We know uh, later on in John chapter 7 that that Nicodemus kind of, sort of defended Jesus uh, in front of the Pharisees uh, later on. Uh, We also know from the Gospels that after Jesus uh, had been crucified, uh, Nicodemus was one of the wealthy ones that came to prepare Uh, Jesus's body for burial. And of course, church history has has picked up this, and uh, church history always uh, prefers really happy endings. And uh, church history tells us that perhaps Nicodemus went on uh, to become a bishop in a very newly formed Christian community, Uh, but we don't know all those things really for sure. We don't really know what was going on in Nicodemus's heart when all of this happened with Jesus. But what we do know, at least in that moment, Nicodemus did not decide to radically follow Jesus or to even become one of his disciples. He didn't, like the other disciples, he didn't leave his position in, of social status or influence in order to follow Jesus. And so then you ask, why this conversation? 
Why is this seemingly insignificant conversation included in the Gospels? And, and part of the answer to that is because that is what the Gospel writer John tends to do. He tends to offer these conversations really as a paradigm to help us, his readers, recognize what true faith is really all about. And I think there's a couple things that this conversation shows us. It tells us really two things about the true nature of faith in Jesus Christ. And then the other thing it offers to us is a warning. So what I'd like to look at is those two things about the nature of faith and then the warning. The first thing that it tells us is very simple. It says, you must be born again. Verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly. And whenever Jesus said, truly, truly, your ears ought to perk up. That means Jesus is about to say something really important. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as you read the Gospels, you'll, you'll discover very quickly that this was not a culture that took well to figurative language, okay? Every time Jesus spoke in figures and pictures, uh, it really left everyone else kind of scratching their heads. And we see that uh, time and time again. It's, it's as, as if Jesus is, is painting pictures for his hearers, and all they want really is the instruction manual on how to do things. And so when Jesus tells Nicodemus that that he needs to be born again, Nicodemus is left scratching his head. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that if he wants to experience the kingdom of God, then he has to be born again. Another translation of that is to be born from above. And of course, Nicodemus is scratching his head. How, how can I be born again? Or, or how can I be born from above? That is physically impossible to happen. We all know that, that with any sort of birth, it is a new start. A birth is, is like that in and of its nature. Because of that, there's all sorts of infinite possibilities that lie ahead. We know with the birth, there's, there's no baggage that comes at a birth. There's no past mistakes. There's no missteps. There's no past sins. Everything is brand new at a birth. And if you know me, you know I have four kids, so I've gotten to see four different births. And every baby, when that baby is born, screams immediately. They, that's their first response to this world that they've been birthed in. And why do they scream? They scream because everything is brand new. And they're probably a little scared about this whole new experience. Well, friends, this is what Jesus is really getting at. He's telling us that, that encountering Jesus births us into a new life and a new existence. You see, all the past sins, all the past mistakes, the missteps, they are no longer defining. They're washed away in the forgiveness that is given to us by Jesus. All the old ways of thinking and behaving and believing, they no longer apply because we are birthed into a new existence. And frankly, it can be just as scary as a real birth. But it is a new birth. 
1 Corinthians picks up on this idea and says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So friends, if you are here this morning and you're looking to follow Jesus, don't make a mistake about what this really is. Because to follow Jesus means that we no longer and can no longer hold on to the vestiges of an old life. All those things no longer define us. We must, in many ways, even forget about them because everything is new and everything has changed. You see, to be born again is to be brought from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. The, the scriptures and, and the theologians call this regeneration, life sprouting forth in the place of death. We're no longer defined by sin, but instead we're defined by grace. We're given a new goodness. We are given a new righteousness. To be born again is to to move from a place of estrangement and alienation to a state of being chosen and loved and adopted. And what Jesus says here. It is the only way to experience the kingdom of God. And this, of course, is where Nicodemus gets puzzled. He asks questions like, how is this possible? How can this happen? This, this just sounds so impossible. Well, as I was, I was thinking about this, I read an old uh, sermon by uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was considered to be uh, the, the prince of preachers, and uh, he lived in, in 19th uh, century Europe and uh, preached to large crowds. And when he talks about regeneration, he uses what I think uh, is a very helpful illustration when it comes to this concept. He, he asks his, his uh, hearers to imagine if the British Parliament enacted a law in Great Britain. And that law said that, that all the rights and the privileges and the benefits of living in this country only go to those who have been born British. All the, the benefits of being a citizen had to be rooted in the place of your birth. If you were born British, then you had all the rights that came with it. And then he says, imagine a Native American moves to England Uh, He calls them Red Indians, which reminds us that terms have really changed in the cultures uh, over the years. Uh, But he talks about a Native American moving into uh, uh, Great Britain and wanting all of the rights of citizenship, but has one big problem, and that is that he is born in the Americas. So this Native American decides to do everything that he can. So he forsakes the moccasins and tomahawks. That was Spurgeon's words in here. And he starts dressing in the finest of English clothing. He learns the manners of uh, the English culture. He learns to speak English to the best of his ability. But at the end of the day, none of it matters. Because nothing can change how and where he was born. He simply can't change it. And friends, this is why Nicodemus is puzzled in our story. He wonders, how can this be? I just can't decide to be born again. I can't change 
who I am. I was born of this earth. So, so how can I be born from above? And so Jesus tells him a second thing about the nature of following him. He says, you must be born of the spirit. Verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you can't do this on your own. It's God's spirit that does this in you. And the same is true of you and I, because you and I left to ourselves have just as much ability to experience the kingdom of God as we have the ability to climb back into our mother's womb. We are utterly hopeless to make this change in our lives left to ourselves. Because the scriptures tell us we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. And a dead person has no innate ability to bring themselves to life. There's a very powerful illustration of this in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, The prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, is given instructions by God uh, to prophesy over a valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel does that very thing. He speaks over the dry bones and uh, the bones begin to come together and the ligaments attach the bones together. And after a while, a perfectly formed human being is in front of Ezekiel and yet there is still no life. There's no life until the Spirit of God powerfully comes and breathes new life into these bodies. A a more practical example I'm reminded of uh, every spring. Uh, Every spring, uh, when the the weather gets warmer, uh, it's time to bring the lawnmower back out of the garage. We try to collapse it and drain it of all its fluids and, and store it in the garage. And then in the spring, we bring it out and we do a couple things before the first uh, lawn cut of the season. And uh, it's been my practice over the years um, to resurrect this lawnmower to life. We, had, we got 15 years out of our most recent lawnmower. We were so proud of this thing. And every year I'd bring it out and I'd uh, put the, the gasoline in, I'd put new oil in, uh, I'd, I'd clean it up, I'd prime everything, and uh, it would just look in great shape, ready to cut the lawn. Uh, but one year I did everything that I do every single year, and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get this lawnmower to start. And so what I finally discover is the thing that is missing is it needed a new spark plug. It needed the spark to bring to life this old machine. And friends, what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying that the spirit is the spark. The spirit of God alone is the thing that makes us alive. The spirit of God alone is what makes us born again. And so that's why Jesus says at the very end, he says that you ought to believe in the son of man who will be lifted up and then you will be born again. Effectively, believe in Jesus as your savior, the one who was crucified for you and you will experience the power of the spirit bringing new life 
to your dead soul. And so this passage tells us these two very powerful things about the nature of true faith in Jesus Christ. But it offer, also offers us, I think, a, a great warning for each and every one of us. And the warning is this. The warning is that sometimes religion can become the obstacle to actually knowing the power of Jesus Christ. You see, I think the most haunting verse in this whole passage is is verse 10. It has dumbfounded me each time I come back to this passage where Jesus says this in verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You see, for Nicodemus, his religion had become an obstacle to his understanding of the truth of God. You see, it's as if Jesus is saying in this passage, Nicodemus, you of all people, an expert in the scriptures, you should know these things and yet you are blind to it. You see, the dry bones can be made to look like a human being, but without God's spirit, they are still dead. The Native American, he can dress and act and talk and behave like a Brit, but he isn't one. And my lawnmower can look like a working lawnmower, but without the spark, it means nothing. And here's what this means. It means that you and I can look very religious. We can, we can talk very religious. We can behave religiously. We can take great confidence in our religiosity. We can know all of the right theological answers and be able to win all sorts of theological debates. We can be respected by everyone in our lives as a wonderful man or woman of God, and yet we can still be spiritually dead. Unless we are born again, unless we are born from above, all of it at the end of the day is meaningless. You see, Nicodemus, he took great pride and comfort in his religiosity, but Jesus says to him, virtually all of it is meaningless unless you are born again. You see, friends, you and I can look the part, we can act the part, we can talk the part, but we can still be spiritually dead. And so the great warning is this. Don't let your religious sophistication get in the way of your ability to truly experience Jesus Christ. Do the very thing that Jesus invited Nicodemus to do. Look to Jesus, the Son of Man, as he is lifted up on the cross on our behalf. See your salvation and experience grace and new life. But don't let your religiosity get in the way of a true life-altering experience of the grace of God. Let's pray.